Hello and welcome to PW's Lipcast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. I'm Emma Wenner, Religion News Editor at Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with Tom Hartman, whose book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, is being published in June by Barrett Kohler, the sponsor of today's podcast. Hello, Tom, and thanks so much for speaking with us today. Hey, Emma. Thanks so much for having me on. It's, a, it's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure. So you're a radio host, and you're the author of several books on politics and spirituality and more, and you're a former psychotherapist. I wanted to know what's the inspiration behind your new book, and what role did your background play in the writing process? Well, I've, I've, I've been... Um a researcher as much as anything else for, for a lot of my life. I was a news reporter for years back in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, and uh, for seven years in Michigan. And, and, um, I, I've, and I've also written several books about the founding of the Republic, uh, you know, one from, from uh, Random House, What Would Jefferson Do?, and um, one from Barrett Kohler, uh, Unequal Protection, the, the Rise of Corporate Dominance, which is really about, you know, the period from the founding to 1886 and then how we've gone forward with the whole idea of corporate personhood. So when when I was um, listening to this debate, which was happening on my radio program as much as anywhere else about, you know, what would what should we do about guns in the United States? What did the founders think? What you know, how, where did the Second Amendment come from? Uh, is the Heller decision a reasonable reading of the Second Amendment that actually there is an individual right to own, uh, you know, guns in, in the Constitution? And if so, how broad or how narrow that is? It just struck me as a very, very uh, poorly informed and largely disingenuous conversation that was happening. And um, so I, I dug back into the primary sources that I was using when I wrote What Would Jefferson Do? and 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 also Unequal Protection and a few other books as well, and and uh, found that uh, there's a really remarkable story about where the Second Amendment came from and and who was pushing it and why. And uh, so I, I just, I had to write this book. And you point to some pretty staggering and chilling statistics. For example, that around 19 children are shot in the U.S. every day, seven days a week, counting holidays. And you note in the book that by the time readers get the book, there will be even more mass shootings. And how do you feel and what do you do when news like that of another shooting breaks? How, how do you, what's the first thing you do? Well, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I feel terrible, frankly. I mean, I, 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 I've uh, worked and spent a fair amount of time in Australia since 97 when they, you know, when the Port Arthur massacre happened and, and, you know, immediately they just said, okay, that's it. No more semi-automatic weapons. And, you know, we're pulling and we're going to do a massive gun buyback. Um, you know, uh, we just, uh, we've, we've seen, you know, a number of countries do this uh, over the years. And uh, it's it, it's bizarre that so many guns are in so many hands in the United States, or or there are so many guns. I mean, there's more guns, literally more guns in the United States than there are people. And 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 by the way, we've we've also we've had a couple of school shootings in this week. We've had four mass shootings, and we've had two in the last two weeks. We've had two children who sacrificed themselves, who literally ran at the gunman and saved their their uh, their friends, but they died. I mean, that's how, yeah. and we're the, literally the only country in the world that's experiencing this. And when you go, and, and, and the rationale for this has been, oh, well, you know, the Second Amendment says that, you know, we have a, you have a right to own a gun. 
It turns out that the actual, uh, you know, the reason the Second Amendment was put together initially, if you go back and you look at, uh, you know, Madison was Thomas Jefferson's protege, and Madison was in in the United States. He was basically running and keeping the notes on and everything else. The the uh, uh, Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787, in the summer of 87, and. And he he sent the Constitution, the first draft of it, which didn't have any amendments. Um, he sent this off to Thomas Jefferson, his his mentor, who was at the time living in Paris. He was the U.S. envoy to, to Paris, uh, to France. And Jefferson read it. This You can read these letters. It's from December of 1787, and they're just remarkable. Jefferson read it and sent him back a, a, a fairly long letter in which he said, you know, I really like this, this, and this, the, you know, splitting three branches of government and checks and balances and all that stuff. But he, and then he says, but now I will tell you what I do not like. And, and, uh, and one of the things he points out, he, he, he wanted an, a ban on commercial monopolies, uh, which, you know, obviously didn't get it into the Constitution because look at the state of the, you know, of the economy right now. Uh, he wanted that. And uh, among other things, he also wanted an absolute ban on standing armies during times of peace. These guys were, were careful students of the history of Europe. And what they knew was that from, from, Roman, from the Roman Empire forward, the principal force that typically took down governments were military coups, was the actual army of those governments inside those governments, you know, operating against the government. And so Jefferson said, you know, we have to, we can't have a standing army during time of peace. It has to be a citizen militia, which is how Switzerland does it right now. And, and, you know, where everybody's a member of the militia and it only gets called up during time of national emergency, maybe once a year for drills. The remnant of that is today's, um, is, is, is our, you know, our state militias, essentially, our, you know, the, and, and uh, so, so anyhow, Madison's response to that was number one, okay, we're going to put into the Constitution, into Article 1, Section 8, where it defines the appropriating powers of Congress. We're going to put in there that the military, outside of the, the Navy was fine. You can fund the Navy forever. But an army cannot be funded for more than two years. It's absolutely a violation of the Constitution to appropriate money to fund the army for more than two years. And that still stands to this day. It's why the military appropriations bill every other year is such a big deal, because if it doesn't get funded, it literally shuts down. Yeah. And so he, he put that in and that and Jefferson approved of that. And then Jefferson said, but I want an absolute, you know, I want this in the Bill of Rights. I want this to be laid down. So Madison wrote the first draft of the Second Amendment, which said that the, you know, the, the protection of a free nation, um, you know, the, the, there shall be basically a militia and the right to bear arms uh, for that militia shall not be infringed. And when they came to the Virginia Ratifying Convention in 1789, in in, uh, in in Virginia, the largest slaveholder in the state was Patrick Henry. And he stood up and he gave this passionate address saying that, you know, there are there are hundreds of thousands of, of uh, uh, African uh, slaves is how he referred to them in this state. And if the Article One, Section eight power of the of the president to call up a mili uh, the militia is exercised and. Our militia in Virginia, and this was the case in Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia, our militia in Virginia is principally the slave patrols 
who, you know, every, every Virginian between 17 and 47 years old had to, had to serve, you know, at least a week every year going out, just traveling around the countryside, looking for runaway slaves and things yeah. and enforcing slavery in the state. He said, if, if the president calls up the militia, our militia will be gone, our slave patrols will be gone, and we will have slave rebellions on our hands. We can't do this. And Madison literally called him paranoid. He said, you know, you're, you're being paranoid here. And Patrick Henry uh, said no, you know, and, and just gave this huge speech. And so the compromise was they changed the language from for the security of a free nation to for the security of a free state so that Virginia could keep its slave patrol intact. And that's the, the real history of the Second Amendment that's broadly unknown in the United States, because it's not a story that the, the NRA wants to publicize. Right. And that brings me directly to my second question for you, which is, you write about history's tendency to repaint and even glorify gun violence. Um, can you talk more about this and why it so commonly happens? Well, a large part of that, and, we, and I go into this in the book, is, is the, uh, the, as the West was being tamed, in quotes, which is code for the genocide of Native Americans. The, the largest genocide in the history of the world happened on the North American continent. Um, you know, there, there were massive genocides all over the world. There were, you know, colonial genocides in Africa. There were colonial geno genocides in South and Central America. But the indigenous populations are still intact on those continents. But on this continent, we, we murdered somewhere between 50 and 100 million Indians. And the percentage that died from disease versus guns is unknown. But it, it, it was, you know, tens of millions who were killed by guns. Yeah. So as, as we started moving west... There was a long, and particularly after the Civil War, there were these guys uh, who, during the Civil War, were basically just opportunists. They were, you know, robbers and rapists and, and just bad guys who signed up with the Confederacy and just loved the fact that they could, you know, exploit communities that they had conquered. And, you know, Billy the Kid and all these guys, they, after the Civil War, they went out west and became, you know, these, these outlaws, essentially. And the newspapers loved these glorified stories about these guys. You know, the gunfight, the OK Corral was actually, a, uh, you know, probably in, in almost certainly happened actually in an alley where one guy, you know, just basically bushwhacked the other guy. In fact, they called them bushwhackers for, for their, their strategies. And, and that glorification just kind of filtered throughout the American zeitgeist to the point that, you know, and then, and then the, the more modern version of that, what I grew up with in the 50s and 60s was, you know, cowboys and Indians. And here we are. Yeah. And what role would you say religion has played in the perpetuation of gun violence? To the extent that religion has played a role, it has been in large part the you know, this, this original, the, the, the doctrine of manifest destiny, the idea that, that you know, that, that Europeans used when they first came to this continent and that they maintained, I mean, manifest destiny was a big deal through all the way through even the 19th century, that God decided that this land is our land. And, yeah. uh, you know, us and we being Caucasians from Europe. And, you know, it's, it's still to some extent celebrated in our, in our songs and in our mythology. And what would you say was the biggest challenge while writing this book? 
I think the biggest challenge was just digging through all the the old source material, you know, looking up state after state. Uh, Pennsylvania was probably the most explicit, but, uh, you know, state after state had provisions that explicitly said in their constitutions that there shall never be a standing army or standing armies are dangerous during the times of peace or standing armies represent a threat to the to the safety and welfare of our state. And, um, you know, which, which informed the, the, the Second Amendment at the very beginning. Um, that, that was, uh, uh, you know, a lot of those things, most of those things are not on the Internet. You've got to track them down in you know, the old-fashioned way. Um, but that was probably the biggest challenge. Okay. And what is the most important thing you want readers to learn from your book? I want people to know that, um, we have had a genocide in this country that was driven by the availability of guns. We have, you know, mass murders going on now. We're the only country in the world, the only developed country in the world that is experiencing this, that there's an absolute correlation between gun violence in any community and the percentage of guns versus the population. In other words, the number of guns in that community. As the number of guns goes up, yeah. the probability of both homicide and suicide, and particularly suicide, but half of all gun deaths are suicides, um, goes up. And in those countries that have made a transition, and Australia is probably the best example, when Australia banned guns in that, in that first year after they had taken hundreds of thousands of guns out of circulation with a massive nationwide gun buyback program, the equivalent of taking you know, 6, 8, 10 million guns out of circulation in the United States, suicide rates dropped as much as homicide rates, and they've stayed low ever since. It's easy to kill yourself with a gun, and a lot of suicide attempts are done on impulse. Yeah. In fact, I, I opened the book with a story of my best friend when I was a teenager who committed suicide with a gun, and that we need to, we need to reduce the number of guns in our, our society. I'm not calling for an outright ban on guns. And I think, frankly, we need to treat guns like the way we treat cars, that there you have, you have them from the time of manufacture to the time of destruction. There's a, a registration that associates them with a single individual. So there's a chain of responsibility that you have the equivalent of a driver's license to have a gun. Cory Booker just introduced this legislation to do this, that you have to prove proficiency and knowledge and safety and, and that you have to have liability insurance. I think it's crazy that after the Newtown shooting, if those uh, you know, 30 kids, uh, whatever the number was, had been killed by a drunk driver or even a malicious driver who mowed them down on the street intentionally, GEICO would be passing out a million bucks to every family Yes, um, because we require liability insurance for cars. But with guns, we don't require liability insurance. And that's like the ultimate free market solution because the insurance companies – you know, when somebody applies for a for a, uh, a liability insurance policy for their gun, which might only be 30, 40 bucks a year, the insurance company is going to go back and look and say, oh, wait a minute, this guy's got two convictions for domestic violence. His fee is going to be $1,000 a year, $5,000 yep. a year. We won't even insure him. And so the same way you get drunk drivers off the road, you get bad gun owners, you know, out of, out of their guns. It's straightforward stuff. Yep, yep. Um, so how can people, readers, enact better laws, limit the lethal impact of guns, as well as the power of the gun lobby? How can they start today? How can they get involved? Sure. Well, number one, I think limiting the power of the gun lobby has to do with outraged citizenry. We saw this in the late 90s with the tobacco industry. You know, in, in 95, the single po most powerful lobby in Washington, D.C. was the tobacco lobby. And by 2005, after a couple of lawsuits and, and all of their awful stuff was exposed, that was the end of that. 
And I think that the NRA is going down in flames right now for similar reasons. People are realizing just how, how corrupt this whole thing is and how deadly it is to the American people. In terms of limiting the deadliness of guns, um, I believe that we should define semi-automatic weapons as weapons of war and weapons of war should be banned from, from the streets and homes of the United States. Police officers, no problem. The military, no problem. That's what these semi-automatic weapons were designed for. But I'm a sports shooter myself. For sports shooting, you don't need an automatic weapon. Um, for skeet shooting, you don't need an automatic weapon. Um, I'm not a hunter, but you know I respect people who are. You'd, if, if you went out with an AR-15 to, to hunt, your friends would laugh at you. I mean, it, it, it's, it's pathetic. It's, it's cowardly. And, and for personal protection... You know, semi-automatic weapon, uh, you know, yeah, it, it'll work, but, you know, a good old-fashioned six-shooter, you know, a revolver will work just as well and, and is a lot less likely to, 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 you know, kill a lot of people really quickly like a semi-automatic weapon can do. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us. And also, thank you to the audience for listening. And please join us again for the next LitCast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. <laughs>